0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. One week ago, we came close to wrapping up this episode. In fact, with three minutes remaining, I thought, hey, we can, we can pack everything on in and knock it out. <laughs> move on next week to the next episode um, but um, I don't know if you'd call it the leading of the Holy Spirit or a stray thought that came to me at the end as, as the time was was winding down I thought no let's hold off let's see if um, we can spend some time with this concept next week and I'm glad we did because uh, I think uh, I've been able to flesh it out a little bit more I added some sub points and thought you know what let's spend some time with this and make sure that we're uh, make sure we're solid on uh, on the material so we'll get uh, we'll make today the final week in this as we evaluate uh, this parable and really we want to get down to the conclusion of this um, where he is uh, the the master in this uh, the king in this parable is evaluating these these particular slaves and uh, promising them their reward and then uh, the enemies in verse 27. These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So uh, that's the happy message we're going to have today. And uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll do a little execution. We'll have a little uh, death in righteous judgment as per uh, the reality that no unbeliever will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We understand that. Now, some will be born and some will not get saved during the millennial reign. Many will not get saved during the millennial reign. But the millennial reign will begin with 100% believers on planet Earth. And that's something important we want to understand as well. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask the Father to set aside distractions, bless our thinking, and uh, be prepared for truth. Shall we pray? Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. We do ask for Your hand of blessing upon our study today, Father. And perhaps if there is a uh, concept that is uh, difficult for us to embrace, Father, if perhaps there is a harshness to the reality and, and uh, maybe we're not uh, suited to uh, embrace that harshness, at least, Father, we, are, we know we are suited to embrace the truth. And, Father, we pray that You would... Um, teach us the truth, uh, mold and fashion our thinking. If uh, there are concepts that we're resistant to, Father, and help us to uh, align ourselves with the reality of of your plan and your program. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Well, in the overall outline, we have four main points, including uh, point one, that this uh, parable is not the same as the parable of the talents. We will uh, study the parable of the talents in the final week at Jerusalem, episode number 13. There are similarities, of course, and we'll discuss those similarities again here in just a moment. But there are critical differences, and the critical differences overrule the similarities. All right? And we, have to, we, we do this with a number of studies. Um, what are the differences? What are the similarities? And which one is so overwhelming that it overrules the other? Where you say, this has to be the same thing, or this cannot be the same thing. All right, we had something similar in our PMW Sunday night. When you're looking at uh, the Babylon of Revelation 17 and the Babylon of Revelation 18, and there are good men on either side of the of the issue, but you have to come to the decision: Are they the same or are they different? Do you have the same Babylon described in two different chapters? Do you have different Babylons being described? There are similarities, yes, but there are differences as well. And so, where does the weight of the evidence fall? In my mind the critical differences are so overwhelming that it vetoes the similarities. And you say, okay, there are similar elements, but they are too different. We have to handle them differently. And so I teach Revelation 17 as religious Babylon and Revelation 18 as commercial Babylon as different entities. Uh, Something similar here. We look at these two parables and we say, okay, there's similarities and there's differences. Um, Do the similarities outweigh the differences or or vice versa? Keep in mind, though, Even when the differences outweigh the similarities and we conclude that there are different doctrines being taught, we still have to deal with the similarities and teach them accurately. They are similar, so how do we present the similarities in a valid way that validates both? Uh, Jesus delivered this parable in order to teach a principle and to dispel an inaccurate supposition. Very important. They were assuming that the kingdom was at hand. Uh, They supposed, we're told in verse 11 the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And that's not the case. It's been delayed because of their rejection. And uh, Christ has to teach them that, and he does so with his parable. The (coughs) the immediate appearance of the kingdom of God fails to accept the previous rejection and consequent mystery state. Israel today cannot be under the imminent arrival of the kingdom. The reason being is because it's not imminently arriving for them. The rapture is imminently uh, arriving for us, yes, we understand that. And then once we are gone and the tribulation begins, then they can be on a seven-year calendar uh, in which the tribulation will unfold and so forth. So uh, the imminent appearing of the kingdom is is not today the reality for the nation of Israel. All right, last week, that was basically two weeks ago, we gave you those points. And then last week we gave you the details for this nobleman and how he called. He didn't call all of his slaves. He called simply ten of his slaves, a selection of his slaves. That's the difference, and one of the differences. In, in Matthew 25, he calls all of his slaves, and uh, we have three of them enumerated. Here, it's ten of his slaves that are provided one manah apiece. Okay? That's a difference. Uh, there is equal provision for all ten slaves in this, in this episode, equal provision. Every single one received the exact same amount of manah. In Matthew 25, there is no equality of what they've been given. Some are, one is given five, one is given two, and one is given one. And in all cases, uh, they're given talents apiece. So even the, the, the loser, as it were, the, the least uh, able, uh, because there they were provided according to their ability, 5, 2, and 1. So even the least able of those slaves was still provided a talent, which is astronomical compared to what these guys are given. Okay. So about 60 to 1 ratio, 60 manas per talent. So, uh, in any event, ten of these slaves are each provided a manah apiece. They are instructed to do business. We did some word studies on that. The duration of the economic activity. It is not while I'm away. It is very specifically while I am coming. Okay, And that's not to split hairs. It's not to play word games or to nitpick. There is a fundamental difference in our attitude. Whether we, in our mindset, whether we think of Jesus as being away or whether we think of Jesus as coming. Okay? Because if, if it's in our attitude, if it's in our mindset that Jesus is away, then we have a built-in um, uh, propensity for uh, laziness or for um, uh, carnality or other things. Okay? When the, when the cat's away, <laughs> the mice will play. And that's our own idiom, but it reflects a biblical truth. The... Uh, Attitude, though, that Jesus is coming places you under an immediate expectation. The imminency of his coming could be today, could be this hour, could be before the the bottom of this hour, could be before uh, the quarter past this hour. So that's the imminency we're dealing with, which means I have an urgency then to uh, to be faithful, to be serving and uh, to be about my father's business. So the duration is not while I'm away, but while. Uh, do business with this while I am coming is the best translation there. Of verse 13, his fellow citizens, they are not his slaves, but they are his fellow citizens. They will be his subjects when he comes. <coughs> and that's important to consider because when a text is making a difference between subjects and slaves or subjects and servants, that becomes uh, observable. OK, and we have to take note of that because Remember, in the in the Millennial Kingdom, who are his subjects? He rules over Israel. The Jewish people are his subjects. They are his fellow citizens, his fellow politi, Okay, Politically speaking, Israel is Israel, and he's their king, and they are his citizens, his subjects. Okay? We are not his subjects in the sense that we are not a nation of Israel. We are his servants. We are servants of this new covenant. He is the mediator of this new covenant. And so there's language there that I find to be very compelling in drawing distinctions between this uh, parable and Matthew um, 25 uh, these fellow citizens though uh, send a delegation the apostello commission an embassy to uh, protest against uh, this man becoming their king uh, it has no effect it does nothing no, there's no results they uh, they don't want him to be king but Uh, what they want is irrelevant to what the father is going to accomplish. This man will be king whether they want him or not. Uh, Their motive is hatred, we're told in verse 14. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. And then uh, their stand was that of an enemy. And that's what we see here in verse 27. These enemies of mine. Of course, this we find wonderful. I mean, not wonderful, but we find... Clear fulfillment of prophecies as it pertains to the Messiah promises in the Old Testament. That a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That uh, that he's rejected by his people. He came to his own and his own received him not. And we see this here. Under point D, the slaves are evaluated as their productivity. Productive slaves are rewarded with political authority and continued opportunity for additional production. I think this is significant. This this demonstrates that not only do we receive our reward of the judgment seat of Christ, but then we also have opportunity to parlay that into additional fruit bearing. All right. Because there will be additional work accomplished in the millennial kingdom. Now, I think we're got to be cautious with with certain things uh, because this is not a church passage. This is given in the gospel of Luke and the stewardship of Israel. But still, I think we can glean a principle here for us to apply that when we pass a test, when we redeem the time, when we glorify Christ, when we reap a harvest or we, we do business and demonstrate a a return on the investment, God will then allow us to make greater use of, of greater, you know, reinvestments as it were. And so uh, that's, that is an important concept we want to embrace. Unproductive or not interested with political authority, they're no longer provided for production. The, the the one talent he does have is taken away, or the one mina he does have is taken away and given to the one who has ten, because he has demonstrated that he will do productive business for the glory of Jesus Christ. The the loser is uh, has not demonstrated that he will do anything productive for the glory of Jesus Christ, and that's what the Father's purpose is to glorify His Son. Note. These principles are also taught in the Matthew 25 parable. Uh, They're also taught in uh, a previous study we had done in Galilean ministry number 27, by the way, in in one of the parables in Matthew 13, I think it was. I don't, uh, I should have jotted that down. Uh, So we've had this principle before, that if you're faithful with little things, you'll be entrusted with greater things. And it is a common principle throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. But don't confuse the fact that identical evaluation principles can be applied to different conditional testing circumstances. All right? So don't allow the similarities to uh, place you at a point where you conclude, well, this must be uh, an identical concept. No, it can be a very different doctrine being taught, even though it has similar principles within it. Let me say that again. It can be a completely different doctrine being taught, even though it does have identical principles within it. Okay? And so, um, as far as evaluation principles are concerned, that uh, productive obedience is rewarded. Well, of course, productive obedience is rewarded. And that's a principle that is equally true for husbands and their testing circumstances and wives and their testing circumstances. But just because the, the evaluation principle is identical doesn't mean that we can equate those realms of testing. A husband's realm of testing is not the same as a wife's realm of testing. Okay? Or a pastor teacher's realm of testing is not the same as the gift of giving or the gift of helps or the gift of evangelists and so forth. They're different testing circumstances, even though they may have identical criteria as per obedience faithfulness, productiveness, okay? And we need to understand that because uh, every believer can be faithful and obedient and productive in their gifts, varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of facts. And so uh, we don't ever want to fall into some kind of a trap to say, oh, well, there's certain super gifts or super believers, or these are the ones that are going to have maximum reward because obviously they're doing all this. No, every believer can stand with full reward. Doesn't matter your gift, doesn't matter your ministry. It's it's the criteria being faithfulness, obedience, productiveness, okay? And faithfully obedient, productive believers, no matter the gift, will have maximum reward at the judgment seat of Christ. You've got to understand that. And so they can be, and they actually are, applied to different conditional testing circumstances. And this does not equate the conditional testing circumstances in any way all right important that we understand that i think if uh if there's any question on that maybe we can follow up tonight in our question and answer time let's deal with the enemies here being slain these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them bring them here and slay them in my presence okay now a slave can be put to death by his master for any reason at all okay And no one, there's no illegality about it under the Roman system or under most systems in the ancient world. In fact, Mosaic law was really the only codified protection ever given to a slave. Uh, Under Roman law, a a slave owner could execute his slave uh, at his discretion just because he feels like it. Okay, no questions are going to be asked. He has total authority to do so. Um, But now these enemies are not slaves. These enemies are fellow citizens but because this nobleman has actually achieved his throne, he has achieved his crown, he is a king now, uh, his citizens, his subjects are also subject to him and uh, to the point of death. And he has every right as the king to execute these, these uh, citizens. Okay? It's not truly until you get into uh, a more modern realm of history that there is any kind of protection against, uh, any, uh, against a tyrannical king. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, as far as Western civilization is concerned, Magna Carta was transformational. That uh, that provided for universal rights of of the citizenry, and and a citizen could not be simply executed at the whim of a king, not without trial, not without due process, and things of that nature. All right. Well, this uh, this episode is long before Magna Carta. Okay. So if the king wants him dead, he's dead, and there's no recourse. And uh, By the way, when Jesus Christ rules on the throne of David with the rod of iron, is he subject to Magna Carta? Is he subject to common law? Is he subject to the U.S. Constitution? Is he subject to the uh, United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Geneva Convention, anyone? Is he subject to any of that? No. No. Absolutely not. A thousand times No. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is subject to his father, and he is subject to his own nature of deity. But beyond that, there is nothing that will uh, tell Jesus Christ who and who he cannot execute. All right, so these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And so the servants who actually commit the uh, homicides, the the executions, they are not... um, culpable for any uh, sin or murder or anything like that. They're in His presence executing His um, His will. All right? Now, this is the private judgment of Israel. This is the private, sometimes called wilderness judgment of Israel in bringing them into the covenant glory. Now, it may seem harsh, but it was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 20. I think there were some other passages as well in Isaiah and and. Zechariah, there's some inferences in the Psalms, but the most blatant and explicit declaration of this event is found in Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 20. Did I say Exodus a minute ago? Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 through 38. So you can join me there. We'll take a look at it. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. The key is in the parable that these are fellow citizens. These are politai. They are fellow citizens and they are now his subjects, that he is now king. And uh, before he was king, uh, he was subject to, uh, you know, being mistreated by them. They put him to death as a point of fact. Uh, But now that he is king, he is putting them to death as uh, far as the uh, application of capital punishment against all unbelievers. Now, Ezekiel 20, verse 33, as I live, declares the Lord God. As I live. Please understand how powerful that statement is. That's the language of an oath. That's the language of a vow. Okay? As I live. Now, how long does God live? (laughs) Of course, the attribute of eternal life ascribed to deity means that this as I live vow is an eternal covenant. It is an absolute promise. As I live declares the Lord God. Surely, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Huge, huge doctrine being taught here. When he, when he redeemed them out of Egypt, it was with um, a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. But when he brings them from the four corners of the earth, and he regathers them at Armageddon, or regathers them at Second Advent, in order to usher in the Millennial Kingdom, this adds a third component. is not just mighty hand, outstretched arm. It is also now with wrath poured out. The component of wrath. The, the tribulation is the time of wrath. Okay, The time of wrath that the church is delivered from, but Israel goes through it. The Gentile nations go through it. So with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. That's Yahweh Elohim. Or actually here it's Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God. And it goes on. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Okay. So this is the global regathering of all Israel. Every Jewish human being on the planet who has survived the tribulation. Okay. Remember, the survival rate can going to be pretty low for Jew and Gentile alike. But for those who lived through the tribulation are going to be gathered from the four corners of the earth. And before they can be gathered into Jerusalem or into Israel, the land of promise, they have a stop along the way. And this is the wilderness judgment. And I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Now, there was a similar episode in the Exodus experience, and that's described here as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And you recall when they were brought through the Red Sea, they were brought down to Mount Sinai, and he entered into judgment with them there. And he provided for them the covenant. He provided for them at that time a conditional covenant, Mosaic covenant. He organized them and and established them and and, uh, entered into judgment with them there at Sinai. And then they marched forth to go into the land. Well, a similar episode's happening here. They're not being taken to Mount Sinai, although who knows? I mean, maybe it could take place there for all that matter. I mean, it's going to be a wilderness location outside of the boundaries of Israel. So it could be the biblical Sinai. Uh, but wherever it's going to be, we don't have geographic specificity here. Uh, but it is stated as being a, a parallel, an equivalent to what he did for them. Then he's doing something similar here. So as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. Now, that was to prepare them to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey, was it not? As a nation, under Moses' leadership, same thing. They're going to be prepared to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey, a millennial land, not with Moses as their leader, but with the prophet like unto Moses, the, the Jesus Christ himself, the, their, their Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, taking them into the land. And here's what's going to happen now. I will make you pass under the rod. Remember, He rules with the rod of iron. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. This becomes so important. I will make you pass under the rod. Remember when uh, uh, Joseph was sorting out his sheep? He used a rod to do it. The speckled and the spotted, and the black and the you know they had different things. It's kind of interesting what Jesus is doing here with his sheep, making them to pass under the rod, bringing them into the covenant, as is described here. Now the blood of the covenant was when he went to the cross and he shed his blood, and that was the sacrifice. But remember, the shedding of blood is not the totality of the of the uh, ministry there at the altar. The blood then has to be applied. Understand that the blood has to be applied, and so um, the the death of the animal is the first pro stage in this process, and then the, of course the removal of the carcass and the other things that you have to do with the the the, the body. But then, what do you do with the blood? See. And depending on which feast you're talking about, there's different things. Where it gets sprinkled on the veil, or it gets applied to the altar, right? It gets smeared, anointing the horns of the altar. Or it gets sprinkled on the veil, but on the Day of Atonement, it, it, it's brought within the veil, and it gets applied to the to the mercy seat. Okay? So there's different procedures depending upon which feast and which event uh, that, uh, that we're dealing with. But remember, the blood has to be applied. The sacrifice makes it possible because that provides for the blood that then gets applied okay but until the blood is applied can you properly say that the covenant is in effect see not until the blood gets applied that's right now this by the way helps us in a lot of things you you and i can use this in the church age in describing salvation right because the the work of christ on the cross was the sacrifice the shedding of the blood and that made it possible for the blood to be applied, but when does the blood get applied? When you believe. That's right. Yeah, the blood gets applied. You know, it was, the blood was shed on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., but it was applied to me in September of 1973. See, or whenever for you, whenever you you believe. So that's when the blood gets applied on a personal basis on on behalf of salvation. Now, for Israel in the millennial kingdom, when does the blood get applied? When is the blood applied to Israel as a nation so that the covenant which was made possible by the shed blood, so that the covenant will now be applied to Israel as a nation so that they can enter into their millennial blessings. Okay, that's what this chapter is dealing with. The blood is being applied. The rod, they are being brought under the rod. Okay, and what's the expression here? Again, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, he's making provision for all Israel, but only the redeemed are going to be brought in. Notice what happens now. I will purge from you. We understand purge. okay? And this is pretty brutal and pretty blunt, but you've got to understand it for what it is. I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. Okay? They're a part of the global regathering. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. So what happens to them? They're, They're executed. That's right. This is the place of their judgment. And so every Jewish human being on the planet that survives the tribulation will be regathered, I believe, angelically transported. Beam me up, Scotty, right? They're going to be angelically transported from the four corners of the earth. They're going to be brought into the wilderness judgment of Israel. And the believing Jews... And there will be several. I mean, there's going to be the 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 role of the 144,000 is going to be unbelievable in their witnessing and their evangelism, and and you can't even count the the redeemed in the tribulation of Jew and Gentile together. But these are just Jews now, okay? And uh, believers will be brought into the bond of the covenant and will enter into the millennial kingdom. Unbelievers, they're gathered, but they don't enter the land of Israel. They will be purged, is the language that's used, and it is at capital punishment. It is execution. It is what is said in, the, in our Luke parable: "Slay them in my presence. Slay them in my presence." Now, um, this <clears throat> might be, um, you know, uh, difficult if uh, we have maybe certain sensitivities towards uh, different things. Does this seem brutal? Does it seem harsh? Well, it is. Warfare always has been. In the history of mankind, it always has been. I think uh, in in certain respects, a civilized, cultured, gentle society is maybe um, uh, insulated against some of the brutality when uh, we're very blessed to conduct the majority of our warfare operations uh, overseas, you know, in other people's lands. It doesn't come to our land. And so we don't see it. Our population doesn't see it. Our civilians don't see it. Our women don't see it. Our children don't see it. And because they don't see it, they don't comprehend. And then they can nitpick and complain and gripe and moan and, and wail on about Geneva Convention and this and that. But they don't understand the reality of what this fallen world is all about. All right, this is the private wilderness judgment of Israel I'm bringing them into the covenant glory. No, belie- no unbeliever is going to enter into the Millennial Kingdom. Now, there's an equivalent for this for Gentiles. And, the, and there's no Gentiles in this scene. Okay? But the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the sheep and goat judgment is the public judgment of Gentiles. Wilderness judgment is private. The Gentile judgment is public. And it's called the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. You can join me there. The sheep and goat judgment is the public judgment of Gentiles in bringing them into the covenant glory. And this is where unbelieving Gentiles are purged and believing Gentiles are then permitted to enter into the, uh, the millennial earth. So this is point two in the uh, outline. The sheep and goat judgment is the public and takes place in Jerusalem before his throne. The public judgment of Gentiles in bringing them into the covenant glory. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46. Notice. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So we're not out in the wilderness anywhere. We're in Jerusalem. We're at the place of his glorious throne. All the nations, or all the Gentiles, same word, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so, again, we, he's gonna, the shepherd's going to get his rod out. He's going to separate the, the speckled from the, from the black, and the, you know, the, like Jacob did in his, in his day. And he would put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So you don't want to be a goat at the sheep and goat judgment. okay? Um, and the criteria for this is interesting. And, of course, the issue is saved versus lost. Believers versus unbelievers. And believers enter the millennium. Unbelievers do not. It's interesting, though, as it's described in this story, that the status, the righteousness status, is evidenced by the fruit that's born during the tribulational uh, atrocities. in other words, the true believers, regenerate Gentiles, will uh, be a blessing for the Jewish people during the tribulation. And that's what gets evaluated here. So the king will say to those on his right, these are sheep, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so it's a positional issue. They are blessed of the father. They are not accursed ones in verse 41. Now the only thing with this chapter, and we'll we'll teach this down the road when we get here, uh, but people get confused because they think that the difference between blessing and cursing here is based on what they did. No, you got it backwards. What they did was motivated by what they were, either blessed ones or cursed ones. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Perhaps the most important phrase is found right here in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him. Okay. So how, how do we know this is a positional thing? Because they're righteous. And who, who's righteous other than God and those to whom he imputes righteousness, right? His righteousness is imputed to us. We become the righteousness of God in him. And so clearly the division right and left here is between the saved and the lost. And so the righteous, they are the blessed by the Father. And tribulational Gentiles, believing Gentiles, uh, will be motivated to provide assistance to the mistreated Jewish brethren in, uh, in uh, the, the Antichrist affliction and all the things that are happening throughout the tribulation. And so the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed? You or thirsty and give you something to drink. And when did we see uh, see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Okay. Now, in this context, of course, that's Israel. Those are Jewish brethren. Even to the least of them you did to me. So, Like I said, we're going to teach this down the road when we get to this episode, but um, just know it for what it is. This is an evaluation of Gentiles at the conclusion of the tribulation. And I don't care. I mean, it gets used a lot. Preachers and others will use this as as if it has a church age equivalent. Okay, that if you've done it to the least of these, you've also done it to me. Okay, I think we can view that as a principle because everything we do, we're doing for brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think it's valid to do so, but I think we have to be mindful every time we do so that we are taking a Jewish, uh, taking a, a tribulational passage and bringing it secondarily into the church age. Does that make sense? Okay. So I mean, yes. When we bless a brother in Christ, we are blessing Christ. And when we hurt a brother in Christ, we're we're sinning against the body. We're sinning against Christ. Okay. So it is valid in our day and age, maybe more so. Uh, but this passage is not addressing church age saints. I'll just let it go with that. Okay, then he will say to those on his left, and these are the accursed ones. And who are the accursed ones? Well, he who does not believe in me shall uh, not have life for the wrath of God abides on him. You understand that the accursed ones are the unrighteous. And uh, these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. All right, so... um, This is the judgment of Gentiles. And so when he says, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. All right. Prepared for the devil and his angels. And so they are um, executed again, just like the Jews. They are purged. They are removed from planet Earth. No unbeliever will be permitted to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So this is uh, true for both Jew and Gentile at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now, thirdly, one thing we want to keep track of is that these are temporal judgments for entrance into the kingdom. And they're not to be confused with eternal judgments. Here's something we've got to be cautious with. Okay? Don't confuse this with like, the judgment seat of Christ, for example. These are temporal judgments. Because these guys aren't done. Their lives aren't over. They're going to move on from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. And they're going to continue to serve and bear fruit and live and and marry and have babies and raise children. And and so this is not the end of their life evaluation like you and I will face at the judgment seat of Christ. I think that gets overlooked. These are temporal judgments for entrance into the kingdom and not to be confused with eternal judgments. For example, the judgment seat of Christ, that's an eternal judgment. Meaning, it has come at the conclusion of your physical life on earth. It's given unto man once to die, and after that, the one and only judgment for your one and only life. Sorry for the, you know, if you're trying to do that Hindu thing and come back and get all these do-overs, and, and then, you know, become the best you can, and, and then somehow enter into nirvana, the universe, or something with your best score. You know, what's that? You know? Uh No. One, one life, one death, one judgment. And so judgment seat of Christ, we've taught this doctrine. We've got the booklet, uh, Romans 14, verses 10 and 12, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Those are your references for judgment seat of Christ. Something else that's interesting. At the judgment seat of Christ... There's no separations, there's no divisions, there's no right and left, there's no purge. There's no, <coughs> it's not up in the air saying, am I going to make it? Okay. There's no, you know, what are the jokes in the comic books talk about? Uh, you, you get there and then, okay, am I going upstairs or downstairs? Okay. None of that. <laughs> you don't even appear at the judgment seat of Christ unless you are born again, unless you're part of the bride. You have eternal life. You're, you're eternally glorified. If that was not a reality, you would not be at the judgment seat of Christ. You'd be at the Great White Throne judgment. Make sense? Okay. But in the wilderness judgment of Israel, it is an up in the air. Are you coming under the covenant as a believer going in the millennium, or are you going to be purged as an unbelieving Jew? Same thing with the sheep and goat judgment. Sheep on one side, goats on the other side. And the the sheep are coming in the millennium. The goats are going to hell. Okay, So this... Um, to me, I love teaching this when we taught judgment seat of Christ. I love the fact that standing in the judgment seat of Christ is not going to determine whether we're getting into heaven or not. Okay? Or whether we've been good enough. Or, or you know, like all the jokes, St. Peter says, well, why should I let you in here? You know, or something like that. Okay? There's nothing like that. They they use it sometimes as an evangelism device or whatever. If, you know, if you died and, and were standing at the pearly gates and St. Peter said, why should I? lie in here you know and sometimes it's a teaching exercise or whatever but no one's going to ask you that question you won't have to answer that question you could answer if you wanted to but no one's going to ask you that question the angels are going to carry you into the presence of jesus christ the heavens are going to be rejoicing and so no one's going to ask why are you here or what makes you think you can come in here okay now, there could be some other folks that are shocked that you are there, but that's because <laughs> they knew you before you were saved and, and uh, lost track of different things, and then they see you in heaven, and, you know, fortunately, you know, the resurrection body can't have a heart attack. Uh, but, you know, there's going to be some folks pretty surprised at some folks that are going to be there. All right. Uh, also, it is not to be confused with the first resurrection judgment. Or the second resurrection judgment, which is called the Great White Throne Judgment. These three are the eternal judgments. The eternal judgments. And by eternal judgments, we mean that the entirety of the temporal life is now concluded and that the rewards and uh, positions for eternal uh, glory are being bestowed. All right? And so. whether you're looking at Daniel 12 or you're looking at John 5 or you're looking at Revelation 20, they all show a twofold distinction in judgments and they're called first and second resurrections or they're called first and second judgments. And uh, this is a good exercise to go through too. It's been a while since we've done this. But I hope you understand that the first resurrection isn't the first first. (laughs) Okay? It's first compared to the second, but not... First ever because Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead. Alright. Daniel 12, John 5, Revelation 20. And when you put them all together, you have a clear picture of how these judgments are going to unfold. There it is. Daniel used to be after Ezekiel, still is. Even in my new Bible. Daniel is still after Ezekiel. See in Daniel 12:2, you have two different judgments that are mentioned in 2A and 2B. And you can think of these as the first and the second resurrections. okay? And this is uh, at that time in the millennial in the tribulation of Israel, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And so uh, Michael is their uh, angelic champion, their archangel champion, who will defend Israel against all the fallen angels that are leading Gentiles against them. And there will be a time of distress which has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. In other words, it is a unique period of wrath. Described here, described in Isaiah, described in Jeremiah, t- described in Matthew. Every time it's described, it's described as being without any peer in the history of mankind. And uh, at that time, your people, everyone who has found written the book, will be rescued. There will be a deliverance, a salvation. Now notice in verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so we have a twofold resurrection that's being described here. And one seems to be pretty happy, (laughs) and one seems to be pretty bad. Okay? And this is the nature of it. Even unbelievers have a resurrection. Okay? Adolf Hitler's going to stand at a resurrection. And we see that being described here. This is in agreement with John chapter 5. You'll notice in John 5 29, we have again a twin resurrection or a two-fold resurrection. And uh, there's actually a context here leading up to this, but we'll just skim on down. He says, verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. And again, there is a tendency, some that try to read into this a works-based situation. It's not works-based. There's no one can do good until they have God's righteousness imputed to their account. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. All our righteous deeds are as a filthy rag. So the fact that uh, those who did good, it's a, it's a testimony to their salvation by grace through faith and their receiving of God's righteousness imputed to their account, and they will stand to a resurrection of life. Um, those who committed evil, okay, and this is all the unregenerate, that's all they can commit. You say, well, I'm saved, I've done some wicked things before. no. Maybe you have, that's a reality, I won't, I won't argue with you on that. However, everything you have done has been placed under the blood of Jesus Christ, it's sealed in the bag, it's cast behind his back, it will not be remembered ever again. Judicially now, in God's righteous courtroom, you have zero unrighteous deeds credited to your account. And so we uh, we understand that as well. So, those who did good, resurrection of life, those who committed evil, resurrection of Judgment. We have, again, we have, this is just like Daniel. On the one hand, on the other hand. John says on the one hand, on the other hand. Neither Daniel nor John tells you one tiny little detail is that these two judgments are separated by a thousand years. (laughs) All right. For that, you get it in Revelation chapter 20. You see why you have to uh, compare Scripture with Scripture? Study here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Revelation chapter 20 spells it out. Verse 4 says, I saw thrones, plural, and they, lots of they, plural, sat on them. This is the bride of Christ seated with Jesus Christ for judgment. All judgment has been given to the Son. But we shall also judge the world. We shall judge angels. We are in Christ. That's why we have plural thrones. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the Word of God, and those who have not worshipped the beast or His image. In other words, these are tribulational martyrs. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Tribulational martyrs form the provisional government of the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. We reign with Christ forever. These guys reign for a thousand years. That's why we call it a provisional government. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. But then when the thousand years are completed. So where's the millennium in Revelation chapter 20? It's in between verse 6 and verse 7. All right. People think that the millennium is found in the book of Revelation. It's not. It's in between verse 6 and verse 7 of of chapter 20. Because by the time you get to verse 7, the chapter, uh, the, the thousand years are completed. All right. Then 11, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. All right, so here's the great white throne judgment in verses 11 through 15. And uh, the criteria here, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, it's interesting. This first resurrection judgment is all believers. The second resurrection judgment is going to be mainly unbelievers from Cain to the end of time. It's conceivable that there are believers here as well, that um, tribulational saints that lived into the millennium, that died prior to the millennium's conclusion. So it is conceivable that there's a small portion of this um, that are saved. But the bulk of these are going to be unbelievers. They're going to stand here for their eternal judgment being cast into the lake of fire. All right, so these are eternal judgments. The point being the entirety of their physical life is done. Their physical life is over. And because their physical life is over, when their evaluation is coming, it's a complete evaluation. These are finals. Okay, these are finals. Um, Backing up then to... uh, You can think of these as midterms. (laughs) right, Because they're, they're not physically dead. They're not done with their temporal life. They're going to pass the sheep and goat judgment for Gentiles or they're going to pass the wilderness judgment for Jews and they're going to move beyond those judgments and enter into the Millennial Kingdom where they're going to continue to live. And they're going to continue to marry. They're going to continue to have children. They're going to t- continue to raise families. And um, and my thinking is that um, that they're not going to live the entirety of those thousand years. I don't believe any mortal life. Now, lifespans will be increased in the millennium. Absolutely, lifespans will be increased in the millennium. But these folks were, were physically born during the tribulation or physically born during the church age. They already have a fair amount of corruption and, and, and disease and, and uh, other issues, health issues related to uh, the curse. And so, although they do live through the tribulation and they enter into the millennium and they produce the first millennial generation of children born, um, and those guys start living longer and longer lifespans. Okay. Um, my personal view is that uh, no one who enters I- through the tribulation into the millennium will, will live the entirety of the thousand years. That they will they will die prior to the of just natural causes, old age, end of life, Uh, they will not live the entire... It says the youth will die at 100. Okay, so there will be physical death in the millennium. And uh, the life spans before the flood. I don't think it's coincidental, accidental, uh, or um, uh, meaningless that the the highest number we read about in Genesis is 969. Okay? Uh, And the second highest number is 930. Okay? We don't find... We find uh, uh, the, the, it seems to be nine hundred appears to be the the top end for, for human life prior to the flood and, uh, and I, I, I put a lot of thought into that. I think that that relates to the fact that no one before the flood lived a full thousand years. Why is someone who lived through the tribulation? why is he going to make it a thousand years in in the millennial kingdom? okay? And I just don't believe that's going to be the case. So anyway, uh, there are pastors who, you know, John Eichmanns for one does does not agree with that statement. But um, we'll find out when we get there. How about that? (laughs) We'll find out when we get there. So uh, let's keep the wilderness judgment separate. The wilderness judgment for Israel, the sheep and goat judgment for Gentiles. Those are not final exams. Those are not eternal judgments. They are temporal judgments that permit for believers to pass beyond and purge the unbelievers from the world. And so we don't want to confuse them with the the temporal judgments with eternal judgments, such as judgment seat of Christ, first resurrection judgment, and great white throne judgment. Any questions on those? Okay. Well then, I think... um, I showed a, we have just six minutes left, and we've completed the outline. Let me just show one. Do I still have it? I do. All right, you've seen this before? Now, that's going to be too small to read. How do I zoom? Control Y. Why is it Control Y? Nobody knows why. Okay. Here's what we'll do. Is that too big? All right. The thing that I find very interesting are the transitions. And we just got five minutes left, so let's just walk you through it, okay? The transitions through the stewardships. From Adam to Abraham, the stewardship was vested in mankind. Vested in what we call now the Gentiles, but... Before there were any Jews, all humanity was together as mankind. And stewardship had been removed from the angels and their earth was destroyed. And then when it was recreated for for human habitation, then Adam was created and and the stewardship was vested in mankind. All right. Now, when God called Abraham forth, when God called Abraham forth and uh, sent him from the land of uh, let's go to what color red Gentiles crossed into into the stewardship of Israel correct okay there was no purge God didn't kill all the unbelievers all right but we have in fact we have one story that's told about Melchizedek okay who was a prophet priest and king and he comes to have communion and worship with Abraham and they have an amazing fellowship with a man who's no longer a steward who is fellowshipping with the new steward, with Abraham. And there's a lot of doctrine there in Genesis 14. All right, so there's a crossover and there's a transition. And now you have believing Jews uh, side by side with uh, believing Gentiles. So there's your believing Gentiles coming across. And then, of course, Jews uh, start with the call of Abraham. Okay, like so. Now we get to the next crossover at Pentecost into the church. Okay, now leading up to this, of course, you've got believing Jews and you've got believing Gentiles. Okay, but at the day of Pentecost, then a new creation comes into existence upon this earth. The mystical body of Christ, the church and the Holy Spirit descends and the Holy Spirit indwells those first believers in the church. And they were all in the upper room in Jerusalem on that day. Okay, and they were all Jewish in that day, I should point out. But what happens, though, it's interesting, is that, um, so now we have a third realm of creation. Um, I'll color it here yellow for the bride. Okay, but it's interesting is that not every believing Jew and not every believing Gentile made the transition across into the bride. Please know that. That doesn't often get thought of. OK, uh, there are a lot. Of, and, and throughout the book of Acts that constantly Peter keeps finding these folks. Paul keeps finding these folks. They're saved, but they're Old Testament believers. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. OK, they didn't know anything about Jesus in Jerusalem. They were familiar with the ministry of John. They knew about John the Baptist, but they did not know that Jesus Christ went to the cross and and redeemed us from our sin. And so what happens oftentimes, the ministry of the apostles in the early chapters of Acts are not. Getting unbelievers saved, what they're doing is they're getting Old Testament believers ushered into the church. Okay? And I, they, they matriculate. I use the term matriculation, like an educational matriculation. Okay? Um, they go from being an Old Testament saint to being a church-age saint. One of the key characteristics of which is they receive the Holy Spirit. The Apostle would lay hands on them they would receive the Holy Spirit, and there now it says there were added to their number, three thousand souls, for example, added to their number. I don't think those were Billy Graham uh, evangelist type unbelievers becoming saved. I believe those were Old Testament believers transitioning into a New testament reality, okay and there were instances where they did not where um I think. Uh, Because of their pride and because of their religiosity, caught up in Phariseeism and whatnot. Uh, Now, you can't lose your salvation. I believe in eternal security. They're they're eternally saved, but they could not accept the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And so they died as Old Testament believers. And they they will have an eternal position as Old Testament resurrected believers, not as Bride of Christ. And that becomes important as well. All right, now we get to this next transition. At the rapture, every believer is gone. And the world now begins with 100% unbelievers. There is no redeemed humanity anywhere on planet Earth the the, the split second after the rapture. I don't know how long it's going to take for the first person to get saved in the aftermath of that. But for at least a moment... perhaps you know a day a week a month however long it takes before an angel is sent to to preach the eternal gospel flying in the mid heavens uh there will and of course there'll be bibles left around there'll be mp3 files on websites i mean there's going to be opportunities for unbelievers to hear the gospel um but it starts with no believers on the planet okay seven years later as the uh as the uh again as the oh get the church out of there uh seven years later as we have, don't know who those are, uh, believing Jews and believing Gentiles once again, no more bride. Again, there's going to be this judgment and only believers are going to, it's going to be like an anti-rapture. Okay. At the rapture, all the believers were removed from planet earth and, and the, the earth, the planet was left to all the unbelievers. They just keep on going. Okay. This is like the anti-rapture because all of the unbelievers are removed from planet Earth. And only believers will remain on Okay, So the millennium begins with only believers. Remember the last thing, I'm, I'm a minute long now. If we start off with only believers then, how is it that when we get to the end of the millennium, there's such a rebellion against Jesus Christ? Why is there such hatred for his rule? Why is it that Satan is demanded they demand his release and he comes out and the number of the rebels is like the sand of the seashore they surround Jerusalem how can there if if there's a, if it's if it's all believers why is this rebellion going on because of the children that are born that's right the children that are born and however many children or how many generations you have in a 1000 year span of time you know how many how many generations have we had since 1010 AD okay how many generations will populate this earth throughout the millennial reign? And uh, and how many, by the time we get to the end, how many are not even saved? It's going to be interesting. Okay, good deal on that. Any additional questions, save them for tonight. Father, we thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you for the rule of your Son. And Father, my prayer goes out to believers that are falsely pinning their hopes on on November 2nd. Father, they're looking forward to elections four weeks from yesterday. They think that everything is going to be wonderful if we can just uh, uh, get Republicans in the House and the Senate. Maybe we can take control of both houses of Congress. And uh, Father, if there are believers that are pinning their hopes on American politics... I pray that you would do whatever necessary to reorient them to the biblical realities. That uh, even with perfect government and perfect environment in the millennium, the unbelievers will still not be happy. And uh, we we look to you for our provision. We look to you for our happiness, not uh, economic, political, or military freedom. So, Father, um, it's in your hands. It's on my heart. Uh, I just leave it with you. I thank you for the study. I thank you for believers here with right priorities. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.